Morning. Turn, if you would, to Psalm 120. Let's turn our attention once more to the Psalms of Ascent. This is our tenth time talking together since we started in 2014. And it's our ninth Psalm of Ascent, so we're just short of two-thirds of the way through. Each time I've begun with very nearly the same introduction. And every time I have a moment when I almost cut it out. It kind of feels like a shortcut, like I'm re-editing the same paper for one class after another. Uh, But then I always have to remind myself that repetition is actually the heart of this set of psalms. The whole point is to sing them over and over, year after year, to drive them into our minds and our spirits until they become a part of our fabric. So here goes. The Psalms of Ascent are 15 psalms that all bear the same note at the beginning. Shir Hama'alot, a song of going ups, or likewise a psalm of degrees. They begin at Psalm 120 and continue through 134. Most of them do not name an author, but four are ascribed to David and one to Solomon. The common understanding is that these songs were sung on the road to Jerusalem during the three pilgrimage festivals. Pesach, or the Passover, which celebrates God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt. Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, which celebrated the, the giving of the law. And Sukkot, the Feast of Booths, which celebrated God's provision during the 40 years that Israel wandered in the wilderness. These festivals were times when the heads of Israel's households were told to travel to Jerusalem to make different kinds of sacrifices at the tabernacle and later the temple built by Solomon. You can find the command in Deuteronomy 16.6, as we have seen. And you'll remember that Jerusalem stands on a series of hills surrounded by other taller hills, including the Mount of Olives. But Jerusalem stands apart because it is completely surrounded by deep valleys. So however you approach the city, you have to go up. This made it a very defensible fortress, and it also led to the common phrase, going up to Jerusalem. Thus the songs for traveling toward Jerusalem to worship at the temple are known as the Psalms of Ascent. And some scholars have described a ritual singing of these 15 songs on the 15 steps leading up to the Temple Mount from the Valley of Hinnom, which lies between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. The temple had several gates, but the one on this route seems to be a common approach to the city and to the temple. The gate was long ago sealed by stone, but there are still 15 ancient steps there leading up to the ancient wall. So we imagine together the Israelite pilgrims pausing out there in the dust and the sun, singing these 15 Shir Hama'alot all together as a set. Since I only speak a few times a year, we make these our pilgrimage festivals and read the Psalms of Ascent aloud together. Hopefully these words are starting to feel familiar. Listen for the ones we have studied before and try to remember their lessons. Let's all stand. Keeping in mind that image of coming up from the Valley of Hinnom and standing at the base of the hillside below the city gate with the dwelling place of God rising above us as a literal fortress and preparing to ascend to the temple. As before, we'll read them in order, starting with Psalm 120. And when each person finishes reading, the next person can go right ahead and begin. In my distress I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you, and what more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows, 
with glowing coals of the broom tree. Woe to me that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as we decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God I will seek your good. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease of the contempt of the proud. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, let Israel now say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side, when people rose up against us, then they would have swallowed us up alive when their anger was kindled against us. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negeb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. 
He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blesses the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Out of the depths I cried to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord, more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. 
Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place, and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Thank you. You may be seated. Listening once again to these words, we find that individually and as a whole, they present a picture of the people of God coming up to meet him in the place that he has chosen. And so we look to them to help us understand how we also may go about approaching God. Can you still hear me? First, we studied Psalm 124, which reminded us to come to God remembering, looking back at the Ebenezer's of his past faithfulness and trusting him to be faithful in our lives going forward. Then we looked at Psalm 123 and saw the importance of coming to God with upturned eyes, understanding who he is in relationship to us and to all of creation, offering reverence and recognition of our need for mercy. We immersed ourselves in Psalm 130, learning to come to God seeking and expecting redemption. We saw that from ancient days the people of God had understood that he is just, that we are guilty and that he offers us redemption for, by his own power and through his own work. We examined Psalm 125 and saw that his people come to God with unshaken trust, that God holds the patent on truth and righteousness, and it has no need of innovation, that the world will not love us for trusting God and standing unmovable in the face of wickedness. Then we cuddled up with Psalm 131, which showed us that we must come to God with submitted selves, having received and accepted his discipline like a weaned child and like that child, having exerted our wills upon both body and spirit to move into a relationship with him of love and trust and adoration. Then we discussed Psalm 128 and saw that we must also come to God walking in his ways, Common grace includes the opportunity to make choices that matter and affect our lives and the lives of others, up to and including the choice to be one of those who fear God, and beyond that also to walk in his ways. 
and we must trust that he will honor our efforts and handle all the myriad things that fall beyond our comparatively tiny ability to control. We saw in Psalm 127 that we must come to God seeking our security in him. The Lord is the only and ultimate source of our security. We must look to him, not to houses and cities, not to striving and short sleep. He alone will give us the means of our security. And then in September, we expanded our understanding of that protection with Psalm 121. Come to God as the object of his attention. Recognizing that he is keeping you. He is guarding you completely and totally, day and night, not passively, but actively, not just physically, but spiritually, and not temporarily, but for all time. And today we'll consider Psalm 126. We're moving back into the mode of responding to God as we approach to him. As Damon said, he's asked me to speak three times uh, this year. And uh, I think, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise, as we say, that... um, We'll get to know three Psalms of Ascent that have to do with trusting God. We'll start today with 126. Come to God, trusting Him for future grace. I'm going to read from the Hebrew-English Bible. Psalm 126, a song of ascent. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. As usual, I'll begin with the poetry. These songs, you'll remember, arise out of the poetic culture of Hebrew, And this is part of what sets psalms apart from other scriptures, that they are poetry. And Hebrew poetry works with a set of tools that is somewhat different from Western poetry, which relies on rhyme schemes and patterns of syllables and accents. By contrast, Hebrew poetry deals mainly in metaphor and simile, various kinds of repetition and parallelism, as we've seen before, including sometimes very complex interactions between words and thoughts and even sounds. Key words play a large part, as well as sometimes elaborate imagery. Comparison and contrast make appearances as well. And the most important thing to look for when we read Hebrew poetry is the interaction. The Hebrew language lacks the strict linear subject-verb-object form that we find in English. Words and phrases instead interplay with each other. They can be reordered and rearranged in different patterns. And they often allude to other familiar works or passages of scripture. So keep that in mind as we look at this poem. Watch for the interactions. This psalm in particular is a poetical powerhouse. We're going to see many of the forms and patterns that we've studied in other songs of ascent. We have stair-step parallelism, gender matching and mismatching, ellipsis, and envelope figure. Not one, but two chiasmuses, or chiasmi? Anyway, two instances of chiasmus. Also, word pairs, keywords, similes, alliteration, allusions to other scriptures, and to top it all off, an extended metaphor. It might sound like a lot of scholarly overcomplication, but the interesting thing, the really powerful thing, is that as we've seen in our other studies, each element of the poetry serves to underline and emphasize the clear and personal message of this poem to our lives in this moment. 
One element of Hebrew poetry that should be familiar to English speakers is the stanza. And this is usually where I say the line, if we look at this poem here, we can pretty quickly break it into sections. And usually I suspect most of us look down in our Bibles and we cheat. Because the printers, and perhaps the translators, have already broken the poem into stanzas. But this time it's a little harder. <clears throat> My copy of the, uh, of the NIV gives us a stanza break between verse 3 and verse 4. The English Standard Version does the same. The New American Standard and the King James give each verse its own stanza, which is just cowardice in my opinion. And the New King James and my Hebrew English Bible put a break after verse 3 and another one after verse 4. This last pattern is the one we're going to use, and not just because of my own personal biases. The reason I want to break the stanza after verse 3 and again after verse 4 is because of the element of time. Now it's interesting that the Lord led me to this psalm in the midst of Pastor Damon's series about the theology of time. Because, and I didn't realize this when I chose the psalm at all. It's interesting because time is actually a key element of this poem, as we will see. We see this from the very first word, when. The psalmist begins with a time marker. If we look at verses 1 through, one through 3, we find that they all look backward in time. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. You could argue that verse 3 is spoken in the present, but it is still, as it were, backward-facing. The final phrase, and we are glad, is still a response to the past. Verse 4, on the other hand, cries out from the present about the present. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. And verses 5 and 6 look forward to future events. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's look at the first section a little more closely. Stanza 1. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. The first thing we notice, as in all the Shir Hama'alot, is the Tetragrammaton, the name of God. Now, we'll recall from our earlier studies that when we see the word Lord in capital letters, it indicates the name of God, Hashem, the Tetragrammaton, which we pronounce Yahweh, but whose original pronunciation is lost, because generations of Jewish people refuse to say it, lest they take the name of the Lord in, in vain. This is the personal designation of God in his selfness, the creator and originator of all things, the beginning, the Lord himself. God has many roles, many attributes, many aspects, and many names, but in every psalm of ascent we find his personal name, his origin of all things name, his intimate name, his who are you when you're at home name. The psalmists are, as it were, on a first name basis with the Almighty. Or more importantly, perhaps, he is on a first-name basis with them. We are dealing once more with a personal interaction between God and man. And verse 1 gives us the nature of that interaction. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion. We know this is an important phrase because 
of one of the repetition patterns that we have already studied. You may remember from Psalm 127 the idea of ellipsis. It's a kind of repetition by omission. It increases the focus on a word or a phrase by leaving it out or implying it. So in Psalm 127.2, we saw, Vainly you rise up early, you sit up late, you eat the bread of toil. The beginning of the second and third line is understood to be an unstated repetition of the first line. In other words, vainly you start early standing up, vainly you sit up late, vainly you eat the bread of toil. Dropping the repeated word allows us to say the line more quickly, increasing the momentum. Like an engine building up steam, it increases the velocity of the poetic lines. We see the same in Psalm 126. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. We understand whenever we see the word then, it takes the place of the original phrase. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion... They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The ellipsis gives us this chugging engine building up, and then the rising tension releases in the final stair-step parallel. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for them and for us, and we are glad. So let's look at this phrase that the poet repeats by not repeating. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, the words for brought back, and captivity sound very similar in Hebrew. If you'll forgive me, brought back or returned is shuv, and captivity is shiva or shavot. So return our captivity is shuv shiva or shuv shavot. If you saw the videos that I posted in the Facebook group, um, these are the sounds that I asked you to listen for. There's a lot of alliteration and repetition of sounds in Psalm 126 that points back to these words along with ellipsis and other emphases. It turns out that shuv shavot, returning captivity, is a common theme throughout the Old Testament. The phrase appears quite often in Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel. As a result, it's often associated with what is known as the Babylonian exile or the Babylonian captivity. You might remember Jeremiah, the weeping prophet who warned Israel to repent but knew they would not and that, he would be ju- that they would be judged and conquered for their rebellion. This was probably in the late 7th, early 6th century B.C., before Christ would count backward, of course. For context, King David lived and reigned about 1,000 years before Christ. Solomon built the temple shortly after that, about 960. Solomon's sons divided the nation into north and south, Israel and Judah, respectively. Israel's kings were largely wicked. Judah's kings were at least sometimes good. Then probably about 720 B.C., the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, Israel, and carried ten of the tribes into captivity. Babylon rises up to supplant the declining Assyrian empire, and good old King Nebuchadnezzar takes the prophet Daniel into captivity, along with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar does his thing. He destroys the Temple of Solomon in 586 B.C., ends up living in a field eating grass like the cattle before eventually raising his eyes to heaven in repentance. And eventually Babylon falls to the Persians, specifically Cyrus, the king of the Persians. So in Ezra 1, 1 through 3, we find this from the ESV. In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, 
that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the nations of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, all his people, may his God be with him and let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And then in verse 7, Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed them in the house of his gods. So Cyrus sends Zerubbabel to rebuild the temple in probably around 538 B.C. This is the first return from the Babylonian captivity. But there will be two more returns of Jews to the promised land, uh, 80 years after Zerubbabel's Ezra will return, followed by Nehemiah, perhaps 13 years after that. So many scholars place Psalm 126 in this period because it mentions the Shuv Shavot when looking backward in time and also when looking forward. But this phrase, Shuv Shavot, is also found in Deuteronomy 30, verse 3. After the Israelites had been rescued from bondage in Egypt and wandered 40 years in the wilderness, Moses warns them that their prosperity in the promised land is dependent on their obedience and worship of the true God who brought them out of Egypt. If they disobey and serve other gods, they'll be carried away into captivity. But then if the Israelites repent, in Deuteronomy 3, verse 30, verse 3, we find, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he'll gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Restore your fortunes is Shuv Shivot. Hundreds of years later in Psalm 14, which is labeled a Psalm of David, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. King David, once again, roughly 1000 BC, was the second king of Israel ruling after Saul, who followed the period of the Judges. And if you recall the book of Judges, we remember that it describes a period of alternating faithfulness and unfaithfulness on the part of the people of God, and thus a period of alternating blessing and judgment on the part of God, as prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy. In fact, the history of Israel is ripe with both captivities and returns, right up through the Holocaust and the creation of the state of Israel in 1948. The first stanza of Psalm 126 could likely be sung during any of these captivities. Perhaps that is why this psalm has such a prominent place in the practice of Judaism today. It's so familiar, in fact, that many people use the term Shir Hama'alot, which applies to all 15 of our psalms, to refer specifically to this psalm because this is the psalm of ascent that they hear all the time. The reason that they hear it all the time is that Psalm 126 is traditionally sung before the prayer after eating on Saturday, the Sabbath. The Sabbath day and the Sabbath meal are central to the Jewish faith, and some even argue that the holiest day in Judaism is, in fact, the Sabbath, which happens every week all year round. And Psalm 126 is one of the central scriptures of that tradition. So every Saturday, many thousands of people sing Psalm 126, calling back to mind the experience of those returning from captivity. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. 
<coughs> then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with singing. Then they said among the nations, thinking of Cyrus perhaps, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. These are powerful images and extremely approachable. In general, all the words are common words. They mean pretty much the same thing in Hebrew that they mean in English. <laughs> we were like people dreaming. It's the same word we find in Isaiah 29.8. As when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he's eating and awakes with his hunger not satisfied. Or as when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking and awakes faint with his thirst not quenched. So shall the magnitude of all the nations be that fight against Mount Zion. Today we dream just like Isaiah, Isaiah did, just like the psalmist did. So we understand, I think, what he means. Pinch me, I, I must be dreaming. It's a transcendent, otherworldly experience, beyond common reality. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with songs of joy. Here we have a condensation of imagery. Two things about verse 2 are invisible in English. Yea, three are difficult to understand in translation. First, the word translated as singing or songs of joy could better be rendered as shouts of joy or even exultation. Second, the word for laughter is masculine, while shouts of joy is feminine. So we have a gender matching, which we will remember indicates wholeness in the image, including both male and female. And third, this verse is a chiasmus. You might remember from Psalm 121 that chiasmus is a pattern where a set of words or ideas is followed by a set of the same or similar words or ideas, but in the opposite order. In the words of the prophet Snoop Dogg, I got my mind on my money and my money on my mind. Pattern, reverse of pattern. Chiasmus gives us a feeling of totality. So in the original we find, then was filled with laughter our mouth and our tongue with shouts of joy. We can imagine this feeling, the sounds welling up, uncontrollable, all-encompassing, overwhelming, finally bursting forth in exultation, spontaneous ululations of joy, the kind of sounds that make you feel kind of self-conscious if you make them in public. Those are the feelings that, psalmist, that the psalmist looks back to in the times of the Lord's redemptive works. And then the results. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. The word nations will be familiar to anyone who knows a little Yiddish. It's the word goy or goyim, Gentiles, non-Jewish people. I mean, technically it just means any nation, and sometimes it's even applied to the nation of Israel. But in this sense, probably more importantly, it refers to groups of people who were taking Israel captive time and time again. Think of Cyrus and his proclamation, or Darius after God had saved Daniel from the lions. When the Lord redeems his people, even their enemies take note and give him the credit. And we'll notice in the last phrases that this idea is expanded and added to by the stair step. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. It brings this thought into the present. Still looking backward, but now the psalmist begins his transition from past tense to present. Looking back at the redemptive power of the Lord, he agrees with the nations. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. And we 
believers in the 21st century, we can say the same, and more so because we look back not on the physical salvation of a people group, but on the history-shattering sacrifice of Jesus dying to save not our bodies, but our very eternal essence from destruction. And the Lord has done great things for us. We have every reason to be glad. But this is not the end of the poem. We are, in fact, just coming around to the middle. Look at the second stanza, verse 4. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Suddenly we shift from the past tense to imperative, from description of the past to prayer in the present. And we also return to our key phrase, Shuv Shavot, or in this case, Shuvah Yahweh at Shevetenu. Return, O Lord, our captivity. And here we have something new. In verse 1, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like dreamers. We had a chiastic gender-matched construction. The tetragrammaton, the Lord, all caps, is masculine. Captivity is feminine. Zion is feminine, and dreamers is masculine. Male, female, female, male. Not to go too far astray, let's just say this is a harmonious arrangement. The feng shui of the genders is aligned, metaphorically, of course. But in verse 4, bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams of the south, the genders are mismatched. The pattern goes male-female, male-female. This pattern can be used to emphasize destruction, an unusual event, a reversal, or a change of state. And verse 4 represents a change in both the form of the poem and in its message. This is a transition. This is more poetic proof. Uh, There's more poetic proof for this, but we get the idea. This feeling of transition represents the change of tense and the gender mismatch is further stressed by the primary image of verse 4, the new phrase, as the streams in the south. Here again, we need some context. The word south here is actually a proper noun, negev. The Negev is the name of a desert in southern Israel. Israel as a whole has a climate similar to here in California, but on a smaller scale because Israel is about the same size as the second smallest state in the U.S., my home state of New Jersey. One reason Israel and California is similar is because Israel lies to the east of the Mediterranean Sea, just as California lies next to the Pacific Ocean. Both have a low-lying area near the water and then a mountainous ridge rising up from the lowlands as you travel east. So the weather there is quite similar to here, mostly very sunny with brief and blessed rainy season from about October to April. For reference, San Francisco gets about 24 inches of rain per year. Jerusalem gets about 22. Here in L.A. we get about 15 on average. But the Negev in the south of Israel does not have the Mediterranean Sea to its west. Instead it has the Sahara Desert. Being Sahara adjacent The Negev region is hotter and drier. It gets about 8 inches of rain per year, and that rain falls in a shorter period of time, technically November to March, but mostly December and January. And from June to August, the recorded average rainfall in the Negev is zero. Two professors from a certain Christian college, which will remain nameless, were driving across the Utah desert a few years ago. Let's call them Paul Plew and Jack Simons. Now, Dr. Plew has traveled 
all over the United States and elsewhere in tour buses with his traveling choirs for going on 50 years. And he has a favorite line that he uses year after year and decade after decade. He points out the window at a mountain or a mighty river and he says to his choir, look at that. My father made that. His ritual, uh, so Dr. Plew and Dr. Simons are driving along with their wives through the great American West and Plew starts to get this feeling. His ritual line is welling up inside of him, threatening to become a spontaneous ululation. So he turns to Simons and with his accustomed sweep of the hand, he says, look out there, Jack, what do you see? And Simons, having an equal, if opposite, sense of drama, says without missing a beat, death on every side. It's a true story. <laughs> but that's literally the Negev in summer. Death on every side. So how can there be streams in the Negev? Well, roughly the same way there is an L.A. river, which is to say mostly there isn't. But during that brief period when the rains come, the dry washes, or wadis as they're called in Israel, become raging torrents. We saw this idea in our very first Psalm of Ascent, Psalm 124, with its swollen waters as an image of wrath and destruction. So when the psalmist in 126 says, Bring back the captivity, our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the Negev, we see this picture of power, but also suddenness and a transition. The sun-baked wasteland trans transformed, not in wrath this time, but in new life. We've all seen Animal Planet. What happens in the Sahara when the rain comes? What happens here in the winter and early spring? Look outside. Everything comes to life. The hills are alive. The green comes. Poppies and wildflowers and grasses. Oh my. This is the desire of the psalmist in Psalm 126. The center, the heart. The prayer of this psalm is in verse 4. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the Negev. And it's also the turning point. And here is where it gets really interesting. If we have read a lot of psalms, which we have, Gia read one this morning that was not a psalm of ascent. If we read a lot of psalms, we might expect the second half of the poem to be a description of the present need. But strangely, this poem does not turn from the positive past to the negative present, pivoting on the largely implied and present distress of verse 4, the psalmist takes us directly into the hope of future, into the hopeful future, and not the kind of hope as in, let's roll the dice and hope I have a future. But as Damon has described before, this is the capital H hope of trusting in a future certainty. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Stanza 3 begins with another chiasmus. Those who sow in tears, in joy they shall reap. Pattern, reversive pattern. So we have a second chiasmus balancing the one in stanza 1. Once again, this suggests totality, completeness. I would go so far as to say, in this case, certainty. There is no if in stanza three. Those who sow in tears, in joy they shall reap. And then we extend the metaphor. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, 
bringing his sheaves with him. And there's a hidden pattern here as well, a very complete kind of parallelism. Literally, verse 6 could be translated, going, he goes forth weeping, bearing his trail of sowing seed. Coming, he shall come again with shouts of joy, bearing his harvest with him. The form in the first half, going, he goes forth weeping, essentially means he goes out weeping as he walks. It's the same construct that's used when the, the Ark of the Covenant was being moved and the, the people went behind it blowing their trumpets. As they went along, they blew, they blew their trumpets. So he goes forth weeping as he walks. But the same form in the second half, coming he shall come again with shouts of joy is a confirmation. It means surely or certainly he shall come again with shouts of joy. And the term shouts of joy is the same as in then was filled with laughter our mouths and our tongues with shouts of joy in the beginning. Another echo of the first half of the poem. So basically, if we turned our poem sideways, we'd have a dumbbell. In the first half, a clear, certain, and joyful image of the great work of the Lord in the past. In the second half, a clear, certain, and joyful image of trust in future grace. And in the middle, a brief and enigmatic image of the distressing present. As Damon has said, there is the already, and there's the not yet. And here, I think, is the crux of the matter, pun intended, this is a very skillfully, very artfully constructed poem, beautifully balanced on this messy middle point. The psalmist is writing from the metaphorical Negev, death on every side. He is in the latest captivity. And the captivities of the Jewish people were not all about Daniel and his three friends resisting the wine and the lobster. There was a whole lot of walking in fiery furnaces being cast into lion's dens, Esther being made a concubine, Haman commanding that all Jews be put to the sword, Nebuchadnezzar tearing down the temple of Solomon, not to mention the slave labor and the genocidal wars. This psalmist comes from a history of real, physical, desperate levels of persecution. And literally or metaphorically, he's standing right in the middle of one as he writes the psalm. He is sowing in tears, weeping, dragging his trail of seeds behind him. But how does he respond to this position in time and circumstance? Where's his focus? He looks back at the works of God, the Ebenezers that we have studied before, and he looks forward to future glory. And he's also working in the meantime, in the painful present, in that pregnant gap between what God has done and what God is going to do, the psalmist goes out to sow the seeds of future harvest, weeping as he goes. But knowing that in the end he'll return laden with sheaves, blessings that the Lord has worked from sorrowful seed. And further, because of our place in the ever-flowing stream of time, as Damon said, we're stuck to the present We have an even more complex understanding than the psalmist did. Old Testament saints looked backward to Noah, Abraham, and the Exodus. They looked forward to the coming of the Messiah. In the meantime, they walked through periods of sin and repentance, chastisement and redemption. We, on the other hand, have the opportunity to look back at the Messiah, the living God incarnate, choosing to submit to ignominious death for the redemption, not of our bodies or our nation, 
but of our indestructible selves. And we look forward to a moment when all the painful present ends and eternity future stretches in front of us, unburdened by any evil or captivity, either from outside us or inside us. And in the meantime, we also struggle with our sin. We will bear consequences and repent. But in this moment, we have more examples than any other people in all of history. Examples of God's love, his patience, and his redemption. The Lord has done great things for us. Let us be glad. And the Lord is carrying us forward through time toward an end that he knows and that he knows is transcendently good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of faith in Psalm 126. Thank you for its artful intricacy. Please work in our lives as we live the messy, painful, exhausting captivities of our present moment. Help us to fill our minds and hearts with the proofs of your love and the attention that we can see in the past of our own lives and the lives of the generations we have, who have served you throughout time. And Help us to fix our gaze on the future glory that you have promised. Now. <clears throat> now is never easy. But we know that whatever pain or difficulty we face, you have promised to walk with us. And in the end, to return our captivity like streams in the desert. Amen.